Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies and the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack and maybe a bottle of wine and let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go, but I am going alone, running far, far from home, till I am skin and bone. There she is. Far she blows. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, We're having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every time we do this, we're just like so exhausted because we're just giving it our all in like the rest of our life. Yeah, that sounds about right. But in reality, it's because I spent three days on Bourbon Street. <laughs> which that sounds fun in new orleans this weekend i you know kind of wanted to do frenchman street and have like you know chill like we'll drink a lot but we'll go to jazz clubs you know but i guess it was like said you st- got shit faced on bourbon street oh, and blacked yeah. out and broke your foot <laughs> i okay so yes i <laughs> fell down on the first night we were doing a ghost tour because, of course, oh, we were. You quote unquote fell down, more like you were pushed down by a spirit. Oh no, I straight up fucking fell on my ass. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so spirits involved. I like where you're going with it, but I'm gonna completely own up to this one. Um, I was, you know, fairly inebriated at this point, and a lot of the sidewalks there are not great. Mm-mm. Um, so they are not, I can confirm. Our friend had already fallen in a hole that night. Oh god. Busted her knees. Like it was like a manhole cover that was just open. Oh no. Oh my god. And it was dark, so you know you can't really see. I don't even know really what I stepped in, but I was down for the count. And my I thought at first that my foot was actually broken. Like Oh no. That first day of the trip too, that'd be awful. Yeah, because New Orleans is a walking city. <laughs> yeah. You can't really walk if you don't have a foot to walk on. Right. And it, it was a bit of a struggle at first. But it turns out I probably just bruised the bones on top on the top of my foot. So yeah. they're you like really. something too. Does it still hurt? Yeah. 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 I wonder if you chipped a bone. Um, I don't know. Because it doesn't hurt when I'm not putting pressure on it. It's fine. And I have like a full range of motion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so walking on it is still difficult. It's still pretty tender and it's very bruised. It looks really bad. <laughs> it looks so bad. I hope it's just a bruise. Is it like the top of your foot it's or the like whole, the bottom, the whole the whole thing? The whole thing is <laughs> just kitten caboodle. <laughs> pretty sure I sprained a couple of toes, like 
So oh, no. Corey brought me home a uh, crutch and like a ankle wrap. And yeah. if I'm still having like if it's 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 definitely improved since Friday. That's but, good. At least it's improving. Right. But if I'm still having a lot of trouble walking by the end of this week, I'll probably go to see a doctor. <laughs> yeah, you might have to end up on one of those scooters. Yeah, that's what I wish I had <laughs> while we were there to scoot around. Yeah. Put a little horn on it and beep at people when you're coming through. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to talk about, instead of like a new story today, we met this guy when we went on our uh, swamp tour. He was our guide. Oh, yeah. Um, So we did like the swamp gator tour. Like an airboat? Yeah, like an airboat tour. That's fun. Um, It was like 40 minutes out of the city, but like it was very worth it and... Honestly, all of the guides we had were really awesome, but he was great because he was this Cajun guy who had lived in that area his whole life, grown up there. So you think he'd have like more of a good old boy attitude about like the environment and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he was very like forward thinking, talking about conservation, talking about climate change in terms that were really approachable for like the average person that's awesome so he showed us like some of the damage from ida which was what like seven months ago yeah probably eye-opening for everyone on that trip right yeah so he had us pull up our phones and turn the like satellite stuff on yeah like Like the layer yeah thank you the satellite layer on and so it basically was all land on the satellite but as we were driving you could see us clearly driving into the land oh into the land yeah on the satellite the land wasn't there anymore it was all water oh wow so and it has stayed that way since ida i mean that makes sense i mean louisiana is very low lying Mm -hmm. so you know any storm that comes through like the wetlands just get more wet yeah well, and they're they're losing land mass in the marshes, in the swamps at an enormous rate, partially due to the fact that the Mississippi River has been redirected to flow in more of a straight line instead of flowing out into that whole delta region. So the swamps and the marshes don't have the sediment to build up. And when so did that redirection happened. Was that like a natural redirection or was no, that a man-made redirection? That was absolutely man-made when and why did that happen i don't know exactly when it happened but it happened to help direct commerce and create more it sounds like a similar situation that's happening in the everglades how like Mm -hmm. all the flow used to go through the everglades and it was like the natural filtration system and now it's all going east and west and all the fertilizers from the farms are like getting sent out right and like it's causing these massive blooms of algae and just like it's fucking up the whole ecosystem and so there's this whole thing down here that's like send it south because it's like they want to send everything back through right everglades and how like restore the natural resources that it had and the filtration and everything sounds similar because it's like they rerouted the mississippi flow and Mm -hmm. now it's ruining the delta Mm -hmm. and it's like making all these shifts to the environment over there that's super interesting i had no idea that was happening over there yeah if you look at like older like 
they're not satellite photos, but older maps of the Mississippi, mm -hmm. you can see how much land loss has happened since like they redirected the river. And it's not so much a redirection as it's more of a, they've just concentrated all of the flow of the Mississippi into like its main stem. Yeah. So the Delta is not getting as much sediment as it, it used to. Hmm. And I think essentially it's for commerce to be able to get big ships up the channel and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I guess I didn't realize that the Mississippi was that deep where it would have like commercial ships running through to deliver product. Oh, yeah. But especially back in the day, it was like, and I still today, it's like one of the biggest um, and most important waterways in this country for commerce. That's not like an ocean or a bay. I always knew it was important. I just didn't really know why it was important. I kind of yeah. forgot a lot of that. A lot of that. I'm gonna Google how deep the Mississippi River is, though. <laughs> yeah, so that's why the Louisiana Purchase happened was because <laughs> they wanted control. It's like, I'm in, it's like I'm in like middle school history class all over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is all stuff that kind of got refreshed while I was there. But anyway, I met this guy, <laughs> Cajun guy. And he was really great, um, had a really good idea of what is actually going on ecologically in his home, in, in the swamp and in the waters that he fish, fishes. Yeah. But also he got bit, he's an alligator hunter. Hmm. And okay. uh, they like straight up wrestle those things. Wrestle <laughs> the gator. <laughs> so I guess he was in the water going after another gator and this big like, he said it was like an 18 foot gator. Jesus. Uh, bit him in the neck. And, and he, he lived? Lived. He's got the scars to prove it. it was Jesus. super close to like his jugular artery, but he had like this huge scar basically running from the back of his ear, like all the way down his neck. Oh it. no. I was like, what the? <laughs> That's something that I never want to experience. <laughs> I'm okay not telling that story. Yeah. Is, I was like, that's crazy. And then um, he also told us about how he he rescued during Ida about 40 people from their roofs. Oh, wow. Good for him. And in Katrina, he he rescued so many people with his airboat. Oh, he wow. lost count of how many people he rescued. Oh, my goodness. Um, that's and... impressive. I just had the hair on the back of my neck stand up. <laughs> yeah i did too because it's just he's like a nor you know normal guy normal I mean, person I, yeah yeah i mean it just goes to show like how like it's those communities that i i'm probably gonna be wrong by saying this but it sounds like it's a small town community yes um even though it's like kind of near a big city mm -hmm. and i feel like those types of um like small town feelings are just i don't know it everyone helps each other even in the worst times so yeah and i mean he was going into new orleans to rescue people yeah it wasn't just rescuing people like that lived in his town because most of them could get around on airboats and stuff but right folks in new orleans didn't have access to those kinds of things right and um yeah he said that he tried to go to sleep on the third day finally and he couldn't go to sleep because he knew that every moment he spent sleeping was another person that could potentially he could have rescued. Yeah, that's a lot to bear. 
Yeah, and he said, like, it, you also need to rest so you can right. properly and safely save people too. So, yeah, but uh, could you imagine? It'd be so hard. Yeah, but yeah, he's so. I thought that was really cool, considering we've talked about a lot about hurricanes and a lot about yeah, just normal people going out and doing what they can um, yeah, in these definitely. horrifying situations. So I thought that would be a good one to share. That is a good one to share. Instead of our uh, normal, what natural disaster happened today? <laughs> yeah, I really haven't seen anything come up recently, so I had nothing on that one. Well, thank God. Well, no. there was a, a tornado in New Orleans like a couple days before we left. Yeah. It was like an F3. It was a big one. God, tornadoes are, tornadoes and earthquakes are the two, and tsunamis. So those are the three things that I... <laughs> never want to be caught in ever in my entire life although yeah. i have been in an earthquake once before that was the, <laughs> the big earthquake in virginia yeah of whatever year that was um but yeah no i the ground is not supposed to move and <laughs> i don't want to be sucked up into a large wind funnel and then mm-hmm. tossed out to my death, thrown thousands of feet from thousands of feet high. Mm-hmm. And I would prefer to not drown. Oh, That's yeah. like not my way to go. So, yeah. Well, That's- yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that tornadoes are your top three because they're weirdly still my number one. Like, I think it's because I lived in Kansas during my formative years. So you'd have tornadoes happen all the time. And it always scared me so, so much. Yeah. Like, because when you're a kid, like, it's I, like, like, do you remember tornado drills? Like, you just hide under yeah. your desk. It's like, okay, like, the desk is going to do anything. Right. Like, if it's an F5, you're you're dead. If it yeah. hits you directly, like, you're dead. Like, I know to, like, get in your tub and put a mattress over you. But I just still... Like, to me, that still just doesn't seem like enough. <laughs> like, shouldn't there be something else? Like, I would rather be in a bunker when a tornado is coming through. Oh, but... yeah. That's why all uh, houses in Kansas pretty much have basements. Every single one. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I cannot. I Yeah. Tornadoes are definitely up there. I mean, I've been through earthquakes before, so I wouldn't say I'm, like, that scared of them. But I just don't want to be, like, in the major ones where, like, the buildings fall. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Or like the ground cracks open and whatever. Yeah, screw that. Got- I still have like tornado nightmares. Oh, sure. I said it's traumatizing because you hear the whistle yeah. blow and it's mm-hmm. like really windy. And then whenever I think of tsunamis, I think of that one tsunami that happened in what was it, Thailand, like years ago. And like Indonesia. All- Indonesia, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Years ago. And like I remember seeing the footage online oh, and it's like, God. oh, all the footage just. I, that's like I still see that whenever I think of tsunamis. So yeah, that's like the first time, other than like nine eleven, I think I've watched a video and like been like, oh, that person died. Yeah, that person's dead. Yeah, like the people that were like on the beach, like saw the wave go out and then like yeah. come back in. I'm like, yep, you guys got real fucked. Yeah. Hopefully, it was a quick one though. A quick death? Yeah. I don't know. Gosh, what a mess. Anyway. (laughs) In lighter news, I got third place in the Putts for Paws tournament this weekend. (laughs) Wait, like putt-putt golf? Yeah. So the the SBCA down here every year, they hold a annual Putts for Paws tournament. And fun fact, the only mini golf in the Florida Keys is at Boondocks, which is on Ramrod Key, which is like 15 minutes away from my house. 
And so thankfully I live around some sort of entertainment in that sense. Um, <laughs> because it's very much, there's not a lot going on, um, but it's fun. And um, yeah, the SPCA, they had their pets for paws tournament and my boyfriend and I were on a team together and we got third place. So how about that? And I want to say our, I, I want to say we scored um, like a 95 or like a 97 total. Like the, the, the whole course is a par 45 mm-hmm. and combined our scores were a 97 or a 95, something like that. And the first place team got 92. So like That's we were real, cl- we were real close. Yeah. And there's definitely a hole or two that both of us just like couldn't figure it out. So, <laughs> so yeah. So we were, we were just like, we really, I was like, we were thinking back on, we're like, that hole, I definitely could have taken three strokes off of it. That one, I could have definitely had two strokes <laughs> off of it. Like, we could have had first place. <laughs> it's so funny because you're talking about, like, I'm going to take three strokes off of that. It's putt putt. <laughs> <laughs> I get competitive. I love putt putt too. So, um, and yeah. I had just gone to play that course with my parents when they were in town like three days before doing this tournament. And I was like, all right, cool. I just got a little warm up. Um, but yeah, so that's fun. I got a little, I have a plaque and everything. So oh my God, I love it. <laughs> and then we, we got a cash prize. So we got a hundred dollars as our cash prize for third. The, um, first place team, I think got like $800. Wow. I want to say that's pretty good. Yeah. It was like 700, 800. And then they have like a bunch of raffles and stuff too. And we didn't win any other raffles, but it was fun. That's what we did on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we um, went on a little paddle and found this island that is, has a pretty nice beach on it. You can paddle to it. It's not too far. So we, we were snorkeling around trying to find some lobster, but we didn't find any lobster. So we yeah. snorkeled, snorkeled a bit, kayaked a bit, and then hung out on this um, island that we found that had a little beach on it. And we like, walked around the island a bit. And then, yeah, that was our Sunday, really. So. I saw that TikTok and it made me so jealous. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is a, I love that that's like our weekends down here, though. Uh, like, this is so nice. Yeah. So we were going to launch from Bahia Honda, but it, the park was so full that they had closed the parking for it and we got turned Jeez. away. But we just, I mean, the kayak is my kayak. So like we just went down to the next bridge and down here, people just pull off on the side of the road and yep. launch wherever. It's like completely normal. So mm-hmm. we just went down to the next bridge and like took a look at it and there was no, no parking signs. So we thought it was fine to park there. And then, yeah, just easy to bring the kayak down in the water. And yeah, that's what, that was what it was. That was good. Mm-hmm. Clear water must be nice. Yeah, it is nice. Oh. You could see all the animals. We saw like three sharks, <laughs> so many cowfish, which was interesting. I've never seen cowfish on the flats like that, but. Oh, they're cow- everywhere in Bahia Honda. I, when I went snorkeling there, yeah. they're like freaking everywhere out there. Yeah, I have never, I never saw them like that. I mean, I also have never paddled around that area before. So, but yeah, no, it was fun. It was cool. Yeah. I enjoyed it. That's good. Yeah. All good yeah. things. Making me jealous. <laughs> well, whenever you guys come visit, we'll just go do some stuff too. Cause yeah, I have a I... two person kayak and then I have my paddle board. So you and Corey can go take the kayak and then I'll paddle on my paddle board with you. Well, hell, if we drive, actually, no, we're not driving. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Marzi and Waylon can just stay in the house and play with each other while we're out playing. Oh, maybe we should drive. <laughs> so, Dad, they can meet. Yeah. Be like, she's, oh, daycare. she's so grumpy. She's like, Mom, hurry up and finish so we can go to bed. 
<laughs> yeah, we probably should get this going because. <laughs> All right, so let's get into our story today. Um, we are going somewhere very different from Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. But still fairly flooded. So there's some similarities going on there. We have not talked about a cave episode or cave story in a while. Yeah. So I thought that for the next two episodes, we could do some really interesting hard hitters for cave diving. Ooh. Because I feel like other, besides like the Thailand um, cave rescue, we haven't really talked about cave diving a whole lot. Yeah, we haven't. And it's like one of the scariest fucking things to me. I would never. I, uh, yeah, could not. I would never. Yeah, and we, we've talked about this so many times about how <laughs> I've made you, like, afraid of caves now. <laughs> yeah, fuck caves. I don't think I'd ever do that. There is a lot of good cave diving sites in Florida, though, apparently. But today I'm we're sure. going... <laughs> I'm sure yeah, there are. There are. Um, we're going to go somewhere else, actually. Somewhere that I'm a little bit more familiar with. Oh, there's Puppy! Yeah, there's Hello. Puppy. He just made his little bed. All right, let's get into this. On to cave diving. Cave diving. Um, also, side note, sorry. The Mississippi River is 200 feet at max depth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to that's... answer anyone's questions, I was wondering about that. So that's about the deepest point of, like, the continental shelf is how deep mm-hmm. the Mississippi. That's pretty deep for a river. Yeah. That's pretty deep. So. Yeah, I'd say so. All right, so on to this cave diving. <laughs> Yeah, this place looks cold. I'm already looking at the photos. Why is there snow? Well, we'll get into that. It is okay. it's everything to do with the location. Location, so, location, location. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, cave diving is the most dangerous sport or recreational activity in the world. Period. <laughs> Say it one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> so don't do it. Unless you're really good. And even then, don't do it. Um, diving to deep depths have always been dangerous, but then adding like the additional dangers of going into a deep cave system on top of it creates a uniquely treacherous experience. Yet there are thousands of people who that participate in this sport around the globe and many die from their hobby. Oh God. Yeah, of course. Like a a huge chunk of, of professional or you know professional hobbyists or cave divers die i'm sure yeah some of the many threats that face cave divers include regular diving threats that you know you and i would have to face like Mm -hmm. decompression sickness running out of oxygen but then they include other things like getting lost and getting disoriented in low light conditions or due to sediment being stirred up in the water or getting low on oxygen when there is absolutely no way for them to surface because they're underground. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we always have open air above our heads somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Ooh. And then you get the tricky part of like the, uh, what is it? The halocline layer, like mm-hmm. the, the salt layer. And you think you're about to come up to into air and then you're not because you're just in a different layer of salinity. Yep. That's how people die, too. Yep, that's another one. Yeah. 
which there's some videos of that that is just so bizarre to look like because it looks like they're literally surfacing, but it's just more water. Yeah, I saw that on like a Nat Geo special one time and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. So I'd be wild. the one that dies in that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but divers continue to push further into these flooding passages, mapping places that most people have never seen or will never see. This story focuses on the tragedies that can happen in these water field systems, but also highlight one of the most dangerous body recovery missions that has ever happened in cave diving history. So just already letting you know. (laughs) There's bodies. Death will occur. Death is upon us. Yeah. Um, So the cave that we're diving into, and I'm going to, I'm going to probably mispronounce some of this stuff um because it takes place in norway and okay yeah and all the snow the snow in the pictures yes um also all of the divers are finnish so which if you know anything about finland is a notoriously difficult language to learn and speak i have the slight advantage of i spent one month over in finland because i have very close uh finnish friends so i'm hoping to not completely mangle these names <laughs> we'll find out right <laughs> yeah i actually did research to make sure i didn't sound stupid as hell but we're gonna see <laughs> oh i'm already looking at some of their names yeah that's oh yeah <laughs> that's hard <laughs> so it might take me a minute but i did i actually write in pronunciations this time so the cave is called the whole system that we're looking at is the plural Plura Steinugel Flagget or Flagget. <laughs> or oh, no. <laughs> more uh, like easily known, I guess, as the Plura Gratis cave system, which is located in central Norway um, in the town of Rana at the end of the Pluridalen Valley, where a 35 meter wide river comes out of the ground. The pond that it creates is called Plura Pond, where you can dive through a multi-kilometer network of flooded passages to the the to the Steinugel Flagget cave entrance on the other side. So it's like two cave systems connected by an underwater passage. This these names are just reminding me of something that would be like in an early two thousands YouTube video. What do you mean? Like, do you remember, um, what was it called? It's like Candy Mountain. With the oh my God. Yes. I was like, it's a Leo Plurodon. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when you keep saying Pluro stuff, I'm like, Charlie. oh God. It's a Leo Plurodon. <laughs> yeah. As I keep hearing Leo Plurodon in my head whenever you start saying the, the Plurodon. Plurodon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, this is not going to end well for me. Oh, yeah. And it it gets more interesting as we go along. So this cave is the deepest underwater cave in all of northern Europe. And so let's go take a look at this picture. So slide one, we have Pluridolin Valley. Super cold. It looks pretty, though. Super northern. And so in order to access the entrance to the cave in the winter, you have to cut through the layer of ice that's on top of the pond. That just says that you're not supposed to go in there. 
Like, again with the caves, if you're not supposed (laughs) to go in there, don't force your way in. (laughs) I don't understand. This is a common denominator in all these cave stories. (laughs) I know. It's like, how do they even find this in the first place? Like, you'd have to dive in the pond in order to even find the entrance of the cave in the first place. This guy literally has a chainsaw cutting through ice. Like, I just feel like it's it's a lot of effort. right and maybe you shouldn't be doing that maybe it's like hey like you know when they're like yeah maybe some doors should stay shut you shouldn't like you know knock on them too long or whatever that saying is i feel like it's the same thing maybe you shouldn't cut ice up if you're just not supposed to go down there also yeah how did someone find this like i feel like maybe one of them just fell through the ice on accident and then (laughs) they're just like oh shit there's actually a whole thing down here well if you go to slide two it's not frozen all year round so in the summertime you know it's nice and pretty green so people literally were like oh we could swim this year round if we just cut a hole in the ice Mm -hmm. oh that's annoying that's scandinavian scandinavian ingenuity for you i just feel like maybe like you should let mother nature do its thing and let it be frozen for a bit like you know let the underwater surface environment heal from all the pressure from the summertime i don't know (laughs) let it reset itself she wants a spa day she wants a spa day (laughs) you know like (laughs) i do but it does very much um scandinavian specifically finnish tradition to uh go swimming in iced over uh like lakes and stuff in the winter time they'll like cut holes out so that they can go for their brisk morning dip before hopping in the sauna you never catch me doing that i I did it in the summertime when i was there and it was cold enough (laughs) Mm -hmm. um it felt really good like with the sauna but i can't imagine like actually actively going to cut through ice so that you could do that yeah no thank you so um i I can't even get out of the shower here when it's like 60 degrees outside (laughs) like you know when it's like cold outside so then like the windows like aren't sealed in your house and it gets cold in your bathroom so like you're in a hot shower and then you step out (laughs) of the hot shower and you're like freezing i can't even do that (laughs) (laughs) let alone swim in a fucking ice pond (laughs) yep well and the thing is they're not just swimming in an ice pond they're going like Deep into even deeper, and there's a thermocline, it's gonna get colder. Yeah, yeah, fuck that. <laughs> so let's get into the story. Sorry, I'm just complaining. No, 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 no you're fine. <laughs> I'm like, I'm already not it. this type of person. <laughs> <laughs> so, in February 6th, 2014, a group of five divers cut a hole into the ice of the Plura Pond, and two divers wearing dry suits and carrying cave diving equipment entered the sump or the flooded passage and when you're diving in extreme cold conditions you dive using a dry suit which can affect your buoyancy so you have to have extra training to do it because basically Mm -hmm. prevents you from being wet essentially is what it does um (laughs) so two hours later their three friends followed after the sediment that was kind of stirred up by the first two divers had settled so there were like two different groups going into the cave okay all five were heading toward or heading through the plura sump that led to the steinugel flagit uh cave and all five were accomplished 
Finnish cave divers who had met during explorations of the Ohamo mine near Helsinki, which is the capital of Finland. Customarily, during their dives, no one was in overall command and everyone was treated as equals. But the first diver to set off was Patrick Gronkvist. He had discovered the flooded passage that connected the Plura and Steinugelflagit caves the year before. Yuri Huatarinen was the second diver who went with him, who was diving the passage for the first time. So while some of these guys were accomplished, not all of them had actually done this dive before. Gotcha. So the, <laughs> the apply, oh my God. The Plura Steinugel Flagit Passage was a five-hour dive in oh which... Oh my god, that's yes, not possible. It is. <laughs> um, so they the divers used the aid of underwater scooters and um, dove up to 130 meters, which is a little over 426 feet deep. Oh my god. So they, their air lasted that long. They bring multiple uh, tanks, and I believe they also had re- yes, they had rebreathers, which we'll get into. Oh, okay. So they have like stuff that's meant for deep water diving. So okay, yeah. So not only are they doing like super dangerous deep water diving, they're adding the like danger of a cave on top of it. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I'm probably going to say that a lot this episode, so uh, sorry, Mom. No, that's it's. I feel very much this way, but it's so interesting. And I think for me, it's like, I feel like I know, understand kind of the mentality behind these guys because I've, like, interacted with, I know Finnish people, I've met Finnish people. They're kind of a breed of a part, which is, we'll get into that too. So, Gronkvist says about this passage... Uh, The deeper part is very demanding, very cold water and narrow tunnels, and deep as well. It's the world's deepest sump that has ever been dived through. So there are many ways to die in this cave, according to the divers. One, a tear in your dry suit could lead to hypothermia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Real quick. So cold. Um, Divers can get lost in the sediment. Obviously, that's a pretty common cause of death. And then, but more threaten- threateningly, carbon dioxide poisoning can happen through equipment failure if a rebreather fails, um, which is known as hypercapnia. Okay. So they have to use the rebreathers in order to have enough oxygen to get through this like five hour super duper deep dive. Mm-hmm. Um, A rebreather can artificially absorb carbon dioxide, but can become overloaded if divers breathe too quickly. So Okay, so you have to like slow your breath in a way too. Exactly. So this means that divers cannot swim super hard or super fast at these great depths. Um, And even a mild case can cause confusion and disorientation, which is not good when you're like 400 feet underwater. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. So basically, like, in a you... cave, too. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just go straight up and get out of there. No. Um, basically, yeah, it, it gives you, like, carbon dioxide poisoning, essentially. Yeah. 
Yeah. That makes sense. So let's get back to our pair, our first pair, uh, Gronkfist and Huatarinen. One hour into the dive, the pair swum through the deepest section, which is about 110 meters from the Plura entrance. Okay. Gronkfist realized Huatarinen was not behind him. Oh, God. This is Yuri, the first of many disasters, I can already tell. It is. Uh, Yuri was stuck in a narrow section of the cave, tangled in some of the cord uh, on his equipment. Oh, no. He was signaling for distress with his flashlight. Oh, no. Huatarinen was beginning to panic, so Gronkfist gave him a cylinder of gas to reduce the amount of CO2 in his system. Hmm. Unfortunately, as Huatarinen was switching mouthpieces for the regulators, yeah. he began to swallow water and drowned. Oh, God. So that's our first. Oh, that one's fast. Remain yes. calm. Always remain calm. Yes. And when you're switching regulators, make sure you take a good deep breath in and hold your breath. Mm-hmm. But he was already panicking. He's panicked, Yeah yeah it sucks which i completely understand i've been in situations underwater where i've started to feel a little panicky and i just can't even imagine doing that under those conditions yeah so because gronkfist was still in an extremely dangerous situation himself he had to keep calm so he did he tried to free the body but had to continue on to steinugelflagit and had to do so super slowly right Mm-hmm. because if Gosh, he imagine swimming the rest of the way just knowing that your friend died too god yeah and then knowing that a second group is coming through behind yeah. you yeah god emotional damage <laughs> emotional <No> damage <laughs> i hear that voice in my head a lot ever since i saw that meme and i, uh, yeah. I kind of don't hate it but also some days i do hate it but some days you're like, yes, but actually, yes. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's actually emotional damage. <laughs> um, so he had to go through slowly as well because he was going to have to go through decompression stops as he began to surface or go towards the surface of the second cave, mm-hmm. which decompression stops basically prevent you from getting the bends um, and you have to stop at different depths for a certain Im- amount of time for the gas, the nitrogen gas bubbles mm-hmm. in your blood to essentially go away before you can keep going up. Isn't it like every 15 feet for three minutes or something like that? Yeah, I think it's 20. I think 20, it's 20. Yeah. But I think in deep, deep water, it's different. It, it There's a whole calculator that you yeah, have to do. There is. Yeah, there is. Yeah um that you have to plan for every dive so as he left Huatarinen behind he knew the second group of divers would find the body and learn that something had gone terribly wrong so real quick before we move on to the next group i just want you to look on slide two of the picture of them exploring the cave and describe the cave is the blue line them exploring it blue line second Boy. one Second, oh, I'm on the third one. Slide Whoops. two, yeah. Whoopsies. Slide two, yeah. No, it's definitely dark. <laughs> <laughs> like, you really can't see a lot. No, I, I am still open water certified. I'm like halfway advanced open water certified, but I've never done a night dive, and I 
do not care to do a night dive, I don't think. I would need a lot of light around if I were going to do a night dive. I'm very claustrophobic. So, but it's not only with, obviously, like with tight spaces, but with the darkness as well. Like if I can't see or if the water's turbid, I'm like, I'm out. I don't like it. Yeah. When I was getting um, certified in Virginia, we got certified in a quarry and like the first dive that we did for a cert dive, it was like the day after it rained. And like all of a sudden it had gotten into the quarry and it was, you could not see six inches in front of your face. Like I even held my hand up to my face to try to like see it. Yeah. And the viz was shit. And then our instructor was like, oh, maybe I'll clear up at the bottom. And it cleared up a little bit at the bottom, but it was not the best. And then no. we resurfaced. And he was like, oh, that was like night viz. And I was like, oh, I never want to experience that because that sucks. <laughs> And, like, I think the visibility is fine in the cave as long as you don't stir up the sediment. Yeah. But, like, it's still so effing dark in there that it's still, like, absolutely terrifying. So, we'll get back to our our teams here. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. We're on so many (laughs) sidetracks. I'll do my best to not. No, it's all good. Uh, That's what editing is for. So, on the second team, Vesa Rotanen. Um, who's 33, was the first to find Tuataranen and also decided to pass the dead diver mm. because it was so dangerous. His only other option was to turn around for a long and dangerous dive back um, because the dive from Plura to this point was longer than if he to go back than if he just kept going to Sinugal Flagit. Yeah. So it took him 15 minutes to get past his dead friend. Ugh. Yeah. Who was stuck God. in a tight passage of the cave. Oh, um, no. And because he did that 15 minutes, he spent too much time on the bottom. Yeah. And so it added three hours to his decompression time. Oh my God. So deep sea decompression or deep water decompression takes a lot longer than like regular, like to a hundred feet decompression like yeah. we do. Yeah. It's... Also, so one question is mm. like they're passing their dead friend, but they're not going to take him with them to like bring him out of there. Like the situation is so dangerous at that point. Oh, it's like okay. removing bodies from Everest. Okay, that's a well. Bummer. And remember, we talked about there's going to be tragedy, but also there's going to be the most impressive body recovery. Oh, oh. but it's not going to happen right now. Okay. (laughs) Because they're all in so much danger. Yeah. Because of the situation. So because uh, Rontanen was running low on gas, he actually surfaced 80 minutes early than what he should have based on how deep he was um and he began to suffer pains in his knees and elbows which are symptoms of decompression sickness Mm -hmm. and grew more serious in the following hours oh no so while rontanen was struggling to pass huataranen's body the other two divers behind him yare usamaki and kai kankanen were also struggling as well it's believed that Usumaki panicked after seeing the first accident and Kankanen 
or yeah, Konkanen tried to come to his aid, but uh, Konkanen perished as well, potentially from hypercapnia, from panicking and breathing quickly. They're not entirely sure how Konkanen died. Oh, no. Or sorry, not Konkanen, Usamaki. Okay. <laughs> Usamaki, uh, Yari Usamaki was the individual who perished due to hypercapnia. Okay. Uh, Konkanen decided to turn around and swim the long way back to Plura, which is where they entered. Um, and he emerged at the entrance 11 hours later. Oh my God. Which is six hours longer than the dive was supposed to take. God, that's like a, literally a full day of just exercising. Mm-hmm. And dealing with all of that other stuff, the yeah. grief, yeah, the stress. By the time he reached Plura, the pond had frozen back over again, and he had to break the ice to get out by himself. God, how do you break the ice? Do you, you have like tools with them? And they must have had a dive knife or something. God. Yeah. So Konkanen, uh, Gronkvist, and um, Rontanen were the three that made it out, and Usumaki and Huataranen both perished in the passages of the cave. And you can see kind of the diagram of the cave and where the two accidents happened Mm -hmm. on slide three. Yeah. Yeah, so the blue line is like that, like the water, and then where it's white, that's like where it's land. So like in the middle there, they can like resurface. Is mm-hmm. that what that is? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, all of the the blue represents like the flooded path areas of the cave, okay. and the white represents the areas that are like free air, I guess. Okay. Um, so you can see, I mean, they perish very close to each other, but it's in the very deepest recesses yeah of the cave um and you can also see how the two caves are essentially connected by this big channel that goes back and forth between the two mm-hmm. and plura is underwater and steinugal flagit is not the entrance okay. is not right all right so all three survivors were hospitalized with decompression sickness but recovered in the time after the accident. So decompression sickness is otherwise known as barotrauma or the bends is caused by a rapid decrease in water pressure caused by a very quick ascent while diving from deep water. This causes excess nitrogen gas bubbles to build up in the body's tissues and blood from the mix of oxygen and nitrogen in the compressed air that they're breathing. Symptoms caused by the bubbles include joint pain, rashes, paralysis, and even death. So it's a, probably the biggest threat to post-mortem after a dive, essentially. Yes. So divers typically avoid this by calculating their dive time, dive depth, um, using a dive table or computer to determine how long to stay at safety stops at different depths throughout their dive to prevent surfacing too quickly based on how deep they go. However, for this dive, the three survivors had to surface more quickly to prevent running out of oxygen since they had spent so much time dealing with the bodies and dealing with passing the bodies in the cave passage because they were freaky. Yeah. 
So overall, the deeper the dive, the higher the risk of getting the bends. Yeah. Because I've definitely surfaced way too quickly, but because I was at a shallow depth, I was fine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, but they were at 400. Like, I would think like 25. I'm like, okay, I can surface from this. Yeah. <laughs> 30 is probably the, the safest to completely surface without a safety stop, I think. Yeah. So milder decompression sickness can be treated with hyperbaric oxygen therapy or um, recompression chambers. So there's still two bodies down there. And you brought up the whole fact of well, why didn't they just bring their friends yeah. to the surface? So there was talk of body covery, recovery by the survivors and the Norwegian police. Mm-hmm. A team was beginning to be assembled to go back for Huatarinen and Usamaki's bodies. Um, British cave diver Rick Stanton was called, who was world-renowned for his recovery work in caves. And he had already done a body recovery in Plura in 2006. He would also go on to be one of the lead divers in the incredible Thai cave rescue, in mm-hmm. which... 15 kids and their soccer coach were successfully rescued from the mm-hmm. Thaum cave, which we talked about in an earlier episode. So mm-hmm. familiar name there. I feel like it's a very small world. Um, Stanton requested two other British cave divers, both who were also ended up doing the Thai cave rescue as well. Um, John Valanthan and Jason Mallinson. But after an initial exploratory dive, they determined that Huatarnin could not be freed from this Dinugal flagit side, and he was blocking access to Usumaki's body as well. Oh no. Stanton realized that this would involve many dives if it was to be successful. The alternative option was to dive from the Pluris side, but Stanton determined it was too risky, especially for body recovery. So the Norwegian police called off the recovery. That's a bummer. Right. But here's where we're going to break the law. (laughs) (laughs) What's that one song? It's like breaking the law, breaking the law. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a nerd. So Gronkvist, however, had made a promise to Yari Huatarinen's wife that they would retrieve them. And so all of the survivors agreed to help, but they had to do it on the DL. So they recruited their friend, Sami Pakarainen. No, Pakarainen. Sami Pakarainen. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Who had been diving in Mexico at the time of the accident um, to dive down with them as well. He was like another accomplished cave diver. Mm-hmm. And you can see the picture of Vesa Rontanen, who's one of the survivors. Uh, Sami Pakarinen, um, and then Patrick Gronkvist um, mm-hmm. on the next two slides. And these are from one of the articles I looked at, and I think they're really awesome portraits. I was going to say, they look so badass. They really do. And I'll put those on the Instagram. If they fail to retrieve the bodies, the cave would remain closed to the sport forever if the bodies were blocking safe passage for other divers which i know between you and i were like we'll keep it closed 
Yeah. No one needs, no one needs to go down there, but no. they're a different breed, these cave divers. So they kept their mission a secret because if they told the Norwegian authorities, they would be banned from an attempt. Pakarinen felt as if they had an advantage because all of the divers, including him, had traversed Plura before, but he warned the others to process their emotional aspects of the rescue in the months before their recovery descent. And this is because the men knew the victims they were rescuing and it may affect them and cause them to become upset, breathe more quickly, and potentially becoming victims of the cave themselves. So yeah. I thought that was... And I see here there's a squeeze. There's squeezes mm -hmm. down there? Yes. Ugh. Yes. We all know how I feel about a squeeze. Yes. So there, that's kind of where Huatarinen got stuck in one of those really narrow spots. Ugh. Which is why they were having a hard time getting past him, why they were having a hard time freeing him. So it's a hot mess. Oh, uh, yeah. No, thank you. I'm like, the very technical. thinking about it. Yes. Yeah. Well, and when you're cave diving and you go through a, a squeeze, you have to like shove your tank out first. Uh huh. Yeah. Because you oftentimes can't fit with your tank on your back. So you have to make sure that you don't lose your respirator or mm -hmm. damage your tank as you're pushing it in front of you. Mm -hmm. Which I'm like, no. <laughs> or you could just not. <laughs> I would say that's why I stick to the open ocean. <laughs> right? So as far as the uh, dealing with the emotional aspects prior, the Finns kind of had an advantage here because... Finns are particularly known for their cool-headed and stoic nature, and I can attest to this. I often got yelled at for being too loud and excitable, and not yelled at, but chastised a little bit for being loud and excitable while I was there. Um, everyone knew I was American immediately. Oh, yeah. yeah. Finns also have a proud history of retrieving bodies of their friends, um, basically you know, never leaving a friend behind, especially um, with Finnish soldiers recovering their fallen comrades during the Winter War against the um, USSR in the 1940s. So there's there's kind of this brotherhood that Finns have with each other. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So in total, the four divers ended up recruiting 27 people for the Plura, Plura Grata recovery on March 22nd of 2014. Um, so this consisted of seven Finns and 10 Norwegians. There were two teams of support divers for um, the shallower levels of both ends of the cave passage. So they would basically be there to help the deeper divers um, when they brought the bodies up or pass you know, equipment potentially down to them, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, Gronkvist, Pakarinen and Konkanen would dive into the deepest section of the cave to raise the bodies. Rantanen was still recovering from a spinal injury from his decompression sickness, so oh God. he decided to be the surface manager. That's so, fair. yeah, which I'm like, smart. Like, you don't want to do that while you're severely injured yourself. Yeah, definitely not. So this was a five-day operation, which basically involved lugging a ton of gear down into Steinugelflaget, whose entrance was up a mountain, 
spot was dry um, and setting up equipment in the cave and near the pleurus side. So those pictures, you can see them kind of lugging all of the equipment down into Sinugal Flagit and that squeeze that you're talking yeah. about is in part of the dry section of the cave. Okay. So that's how tight it was for them to even get like the diving equipment down. Well, at least it was also in the dry section though. Like you didn't have to worry about the other like water part of that. Yeah. Well, and that's why they kind of staged everything in that part. Yeah. So on March 24th, the recovery began. The three went into the water along with their support teams. But after descending 85 meters, Konkanen returned. He explained that he had slept badly the night before and was not in the right frame of mind for the operation. Pakarainen and Gronkvist continued their descent. They swam past Usumaki's body, moving 20 meters further to where Huataranen was stuck, managing to cut Huataranen's equipment away to release the body to negotiate it through the narrow section of the cave. They brought Huataranen's body all the way uh, through the cave up to Steinugel Flagit successfully. Wow. So Usumaki's body is still down there. They have to do multiple dives in order to do it safely. So the following day, Gronkvist and Pakarainen returned to retrieve Usumaki's body, assisted by another diver, Yanni Santala, uh, launching the recovery at Steinugel Flagit this time instead of Plura. This day was more difficult because Usumaki's body was buoyant and hard to handle. Pakarainen had a near brush with death himself when part of the cave collapsed on him. <gasps> but yeah. Oh my God. Like, there was a rock fall, I think. But he was able to recover and swim on. Fin finally, both victims were lifted up through Steinugel Flagit. The whole operation took 101 hours of diving time, and the group held a small memorial ceremony in the cave before going to the police station. That's nice that they had their own little memorial. Yeah. Pakarainen said he sensed the Norwegian police were pleased with the recovery, um, but indicated that they had broken some rules and the police would have to investigate them. Oh. After six months, though, they were told that they would face no charges, and the Finnish president awarded Gronkvist the first-class medal of the White Rose of Finland. Uh, British diver Rick Stanton was later quoted as saying the Finns' effort was well-planned and executed, but a little bit out there in terms of danger. Little did he know that he would go on to set up a far more dangerous and high-stakes rescue mission for the soccer team that was stuck in the Tom Long cave mm -hmm. in 2019. So, wow. So he ate his words a little yeah. bit. Um, Stanton also said that with proper training and planning, accidents such as this should never happen to experienced divers, which is interesting because it keeps fucking happening to really experienced people. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I was thinking about this free diver recently who he passed away a couple years ago, but he was like a very well-known free diver and he died free diving. So it happens. Yeah. 
It does because it's the nature of nature, right? Yeah. So the Plura Grotto caves are open again. However, nobody has attempted to dive between the two caves. Although Pakarainen says it's only a matter of time. All three surviving divers have gone on to continue to enjoy the sport despite their harrowing experience. But Plura Grotto remains one of the most dangerous caves in Europe. And it may only be a matter of time before it claims more victims. Yeah, definitely. And and that is the story of the Plura Cave tragedy. That's a good story, and I am never going there. <laughs> I can safely say that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a rough one, but, like, considering what they did just to recover their friends' bodies and what they had to do to, like, survive themselves is is just crazy the amount of like emotional and physical control you would have to have yeah especially like considering those dives were like over five hours long yes i'd be freaking out if i had to pass my dead friend right i don't think i've been on a dive that's longer than like 45 minutes right (laughs) it's like i don't know what that's like yeah, I, I don't either. All right, well. Want to do your sources before we forget? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I actually only have two citations for this. Um, one is an article from BBC News by William Kremer, um, and it's titled The Cavers Who Went Back for Their Friends. Aww. Um, And then also the documentary Diving Into the Unknown, which I believe is on Amazon Prime. Okay. And that's actually how I first found out about this whole deal. Um, So it's definitely worth a watch, but there are a lot of subtitles because they do speak Finnish like almost the entire time. But for me, it was kind of like this weird because I've I've heard Finnish before and it just kind of like was like this weird trigger of nostalgia for me, even though it was about this like really terrible thing. Yeah. It's like I almost felt like I know I knew these people, but yeah. So those are my sources. Nice, good deal. Um, I thought it was a good story. Yeah, I. It's it's one of the more positive ones because typically these just really often end up in absolute tragedy. Yeah. Um, I more like often they were able to go back for their friend. Yeah, and it's impressive it's, because it's that's insane that yeah, I would say it's insane that those dives are like eleven whatever hours long. Yeah. Ugh. That's like I mean, that's longer than a work day. I know. I, I just that's how I yeah, that's how I rationalize it. I'm like, that's a long ass work day. Yeah. <laughs> that's like you're dead tired from that work day. And what yeah. are you doing? Just you know, being at your desk or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> The mental energy was expended. Um, so yeah, it's it's a wild one, and I think I feel like I did an okay job with pronunciation. Yeah, no, it sounded like you did great. The Saint Ugal Flagit one like kept getting me at the yeah. beginning. <laughs> yeah, but that's a hard word to say too. So and I think that one's Norwegian, so I, I have no like um like. Uh, precedent or uh, like reference for even how to pronounce that you know um finnish is fun because it's like a very sing-songy language yeah 
So like who Atarinen and Rantanen and Bakarainen, like that's yeah. how like it's kind of supposed to be pronounced. I'm sure that was awful, but that's kind of what it sounds like to me um, when it I hear sounds it. Sounds like you did a good job, but I don't know anything different, so <laughs> don't take my word for it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so should we do some happy things? Do some happy things. Mm-hmm. Um, happy thing for me was that I had a good weekend, honestly. Yeah. Weekend. Yeah. Kind of look- talked about it, so I don't yeah. really feel like we need to go into more detail about it, but yeah. I mean, you are a putt-putt champion, so. Add that to the resume. <laughs> I think that was my best game yet, honestly. I've played that course a couple of times. I got a hole-in-one on the first hole. <laughs> I was like, this is off to a great start. To be honest, like putt putt is the only golf I will ever play because I find like normal golf so boring. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I like I'll go to a driving range, I'll go to top golf, I'll do mini golf, but I've never played a full round of golf in my entire life. So I mean, I'll drive the golf cart around and get drunk. I'll do that. Right. <laughs> my mom says that any sport where you can play a sport and you just hang on to at the same time is not a sport. Uh I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> technically eat a sandwich at the same time you're playing tennis if you try hard enough well that's true but that's just impressive (laughs) oh my goodness so i just was checking facebook real quick to see if there was anything on there Mm -hmm. and on a stormy night in 2005 an african flamingo known as number 492 because of the number on its leg band managed to escape from a kansas zoo now the bird has been spotted on the Texas coast 17 years later. Jillian, you have to take a look for this flamingo. I will. <laughs> Good for him leaving Kansas. <laughs> He's like, get me the hell out of here. It's cold and there is freaking tornadoes. I don't like it. <laughs> the Coastal Fisheries Division of Texas Parks and Wildlife confirmed hey. Tuesday to the Associated Press that the African flamingo known as number 492 because of the number on its leg band was captured on video sh- on a video shot March. Oh, excuse me. Was captured on video shot March tenth by an environmental si- activist near Port Lavaca, Texas. What at Rhodes, at Rhodes Point in Cox Bay? Are you near there? That's where I fucking live. But Julian, this flamingo is near you. You should go what? find it. <laughs> go find. <laughs> yeah, that's the organization I work for as well. Actually. Yeah, I was going to try to say that too, like, excited because I wasn't sure, but. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, God, Um, I'll have to tell Corey. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out for him because he's, like, literally in town. Cox Bay is very close. What the hell? I I go to, like, NOLA for fucking a weekend and miss the Flamingo news, clearly. Jeez. I'll this in the chat. (laughs) Well, I guess my thing is apparently we have a flamingo in town. <laughs> That's fun. Um, I guess uh, I guess my happy thing is that I'm getting very close to finishing the lab part of a study that I have been working on since I moved to Texas. Oh yeah. Uh yeah. And so I'm gonna be once I close that out, I'll be able to start like. The writing process for manuscript oh wow which will be uh another long and agonizing 
process, but it's it's nice to kind of close out that part of the study. Yeah, um, that's true. So that's kind of my happy close thing. Close out that part of the study. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, my foot will get better. Oh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> you just gotta rice it. Rest, ice, compression, and elevation. I thought you just like misspoke. <laughs> gotta no. rice it. No, just gotta rice it. God, I've sprained my ankles so many times playing soccer. It's like that shit is ingrained in my brain. I'm surprised I have not injured myself more in that way because I fall down all the fucking time, like all the time. <laughs> Face first into the sidewalk all the time. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly so. My <laughs> knees are messed up too. I've got huge Aww. bruises on my knees and I hit my face too so hard that my friend who was with us was like i'm amazed you didn't get a concussion <laughs> yeah that would have not been fun so i got like a bruise on my chin and like a cut on my lip but other than that but i'm a mess i'm a mess it's all good at least this you're a little intoxicated so your body probably hit the ground a little bit less yeah hard yeah. i guess yeah, like, that's... You know, when you're when you're like sober, you tense up, and when you're drunk, you're not. It's really tense, so it just kind mm-hmm. of it's like rubber more. Yeah, that's why. Uh, not to bring the mood down, but that's why drunk drivers often survive. Yeah, no, that's what yeah. I was thinking too when I was saying that because that's where I heard that. But I was not driving; I was walking. I was being <laughs> responsible. <laughs> yes, two feet. Um. But yeah, that's what you get for trying to party in New Orleans like you're 20 when you're 30. Yeah. Um, Mercy, stop pushing the laptop, baby girl. Come here. Come here. She's right here. She's like, Mom, are you ready for bed? Because I'm ready for bed. I'm ready for the sleepies. All right. So if our listeners want to find us, where can they find us? Oh, yeah. You guys, excuse me while my voice is going. Anyone can find us on the socials on Instagram at Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast and on Twitter at MNWKY Podcast. And then we have our website, which is Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast.com. You can hit us up there or you can listen to us there. You can also listen to us on Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and any streaming platform. Ta da. Yep. Um, and then in addition to all of that, if you have a survival story or a story in which you were out in nature and felt just a little uncomfy, (laughs) um, because of what happened to you, um, we, uh, please like write into us. Um, we have a story submission page on the website. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything crazy. You don't have to have gone cave diving, lost two of your best friends and had to go back and recover the bodies or anything like that. But if you have, we want to hear about it. But yeah, it can really be just about anything as long as it involves um, an uncomfortable moment for you in nature. Um, in addition to that, uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by giving us a five-star review um, on any of the listening platforms because it just helps to push us up with the algorithm. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how it works. It's like math and stuff, but somehow it gets us um, 
more noticed by listeners. And so if you want to help, that is the best way to do so. Um, And then thank you for uh, listening. And uh, with that. Until next time, stay safe. But most of all, stay curious, explorers. See you later. Uh, Goodbye.